listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. Eric Daw. That dude, that guy, he said, he... Yep, you hate him. Yes, indeed. Welcome to the show. It's the Fret Files podcast, your fortnightly foray into guitar geekery. I'm the uh, chief geek around here, the mm-hmm. guitar geek. My name's Eric Daw, your your personal guitar scientist with 25 years of experience restoring, building, and repairing guitars. Today's co-host is Nat. Hello. Howdy, howdy, Nat. Great to be here. Greetings. I will read the listeners' submitted questions, and Eric will try to answer them the best he can, drawing on his experience as a professional luthier. Mm-hmm. What's been on your bench lately, Eric? I'm trying to get caught up on repairs. I've had a, I had a flurry of custom guitars that I needed to get done. You had a passel, huh? For uh, Emerald City Guitars. They're my only dealer. Heard of them, yeah. yeah. Uh, they're in Seattle. Uh, I they ordered three guitars and they just happened to be coming through Idaho and wanted to pick them up while they were here. So I I kind of had a deadline. They just kind of swung through, huh? Yeah. So I had a deadline. I had to get those done, and it put me behind on some repairs. So I am uh, trying to get caught up on those. What'd you give them? I always like to hear the colors. I don't. It helps me visualize. I yeah. think. Three guitars. They got a black S style. Oh, so right, like so. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Uh, with a white pickguard. Yeah. You know the three pickup model with the tremolo. How else would you do it? And they got two T models. Oh, those are nice. Mm-hmm. Not a model T. Not no. Like a, not it's like a, a Ford. Not like a model just, T. But yeah. T style guitars with uh, one was a blonde, like mid fifties. Style and one was a butterscotch early fifties. Oh boy, style. so a beautiful pale, and you could see the grain through both of them, mm-hmm. and all three of them. You still get ash bodies, or are yeah, those hard to find? Yeah, yeah, they yes to both questions. You just but you just have to. Well, yeah, you, like everything, you're paying more, mm-hmm. and it's scarcer. Yeah, I don't know what the deal is. It's a life of scarcity, man. Entropy. I don't like it getting used mm-hmm. i know it's weird supply chain issues i told my kid today you're gonna be hearing this the rest of your life there's gonna be handwritten notes everywhere you go saying expect this to be terrible <laughs> because of supply chain issues i i'm afraid so you know it's interesting to think about that though like can you imagine the depression and uh being like a young parent during the depression and you'd think, Oh man, what kind of world are my parent? What, what kind of world are my kids inheriting? It's unbelievable. And then just 20, 30 years later, you've got the fifties, like economic boom. Yeah. Right. Like post-war. I know, you know, abundance. So I don't think that it'll, <laughs> it's hard to know. Yeah. 
But I was listening to uh, Woody Guthrie's Dust Bowl record, which, fun fact. Is that where you get all your news? Yeah. That's, Woody Guthrie. I'm a little behind. <laughs> Woody Guthrie had a Dust Bowl record, a compilation, that I got from, it's on Folkways Records, and it's from Columbia University, and I saw the distance between Columbia University and the cafe that Bob Dylan used to play in, and the hospital that Woody Guthrie died in, and Bob Dylan went over there and talked at him. Anyway, it's a whole series of terrible Dust Bowl songs, just like you'd expect, and you're right. They did kind of come out of that, but gosh, what a terror Yeah, at the time, and you must have thought, because it was pervasive, it kind of just kept on going. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, it'd be a hard thing to raise kids like that. Yeah, and there were so, I mean, so like, the, there were so many things that coincided, you know, the stock market crash mm-hmm. and uh, agricultural problems. Oh, and yeah. And they, they weren't necessarily related. Well, and then they had rationing and nationalization of industries for the war, rubber, um, and, you know, I take my other... Uh, my other newspaper is Bugs Bunny cartoons, and it, there were some uh, some that talked about the rationing of rubber and steel and gas, gasoline. Yeah, yeah. restricted that. But everything's cyclical, you know. The more you look at history, you then you go, oh, oh, it ain't oh, that new, is it? This is happening all over again because yep. it happens time and time again. It sure know? does. It's just a the cyclical thing. Just where are you in the cycle? So they're uh, those colors, huh? Well, that's neat. <laughs> yeah, yep. Yeah. Black, black one, blonde one, and a butterscotch one. We did yeah. bottle tea, and we did. Uh, that's a fun chain. And the two kinds of butterscotch and mm-hmm. ash bodies are a little bit difficult to get, but you just gotta. Well, that's neat. Yep, it's true. All right, what what are we doing here? The guitar history corner. That, let's do a little guitar history. I'm up for it. I thought that we would talk about Framus guitars. That's out of left field a little bit. Or Framus. I've heard it said... Framatone. I've heard it said... Framus. 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 Nat speaks German. So I, a little I, bit, yeah. I asked him what would the correct pronunciation be, and he... Uh, I said Framus. Yeah. So I'm not going to say Framus. <laughs> um, but and I don't know what they say, yeah. Apparently, you know, if you're just going to anglicize a word, then all bets are off. You yeah, just do what you it's, want. It's a free-for-all. So I'm going to call it Framus. It's like how they name kids these days and how they spell their names. Go ahead, Bill. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> That's the worst. I mean, <laughs> it's a heck of a thing. You go see your kids play soccer and yeah. the other parents are screaming the names. Don't name any of them right now because... Yeah. I'll, yeah. Valued listeners. We'll talk about it later. Yeah. <laughs> Framus was German. This a uh, well, yeah. I'll, I'll here. We'll just go right to the. Yeah, just uh, do it. Just send it. We'll go right to the company history from a website here, made in Western Germany. Probably yeah, yeah, they yeah. stamped on the them. story of Framus began in January 1946 when the Frankish. Oh my gosh, Musikinstruments Drudsengang. Yeah. Swedish chef. Yeah. Was founded in Bavaria. That's a heck of a time to start an instrument company. 1946. Bless him for giving it a shot. Yeah, in Germany, no less. Yeah. 
Framus was one of the most important manufacturers of electric guitars in Europe between the 40s and the end of the 70s. Wow. Yeah, the, com- the company was created by Fred Wilfer, mm-hmm. the father of Hans-Peter Wilfer, who would yeah. later create Warwick some years later. Did you know that Warwick and Framus were... Like uh-uh. father and son kind of connected brands. No, what, no what's I, Warwick? Warwick is those goofy basses with the Doctor oh, Dr. Seuss horns. Oh no! And the you know, oh, nine strings. Well, it's active uh, electronics and such. Like Brothers Grimm stuff going on in Bavaria. Hmm. Heavens. Anyhow, the Bavarian government welcomed these these plans to uh, to start up this. Oh, I I missed I missed a paragraph. Let oh. me let me go back. Yeah. Fred Wilfer was born in Schoenbach, 1917. Sounds beautiful. In 1945, when he heard about the expulsion plans of the Allied forces, which were going to affect his homeland in South Germany as well, he decided to build up a new basis for his countryman and the hmm. music industry in the West. Okay. The Bavarian government welcomed his plans and asked him to create all conditions needed for the settlement to Bavaria. Gosh, it's hard to create conditions for that, but give it a shot with instruments. That's cool. Yeah, I guess so. So uh, they founded January 1st, 1946 in Erlangen, which became the central location of instrument makers who were displaced from Schoenbach. Huh. A factory was set up in a former barracks camp. How yeah, about that? I hesitate to delve too deeply into what that might have been. And, uh, yeah, I know. Uh, and oh, let me scroll down. Yeah, scroll it. Uh, at the end of 1948, the factory was moved uh, to the nearby town of Beiersdorf. I mean, <laughs> they're this making is, this up. This is unnecessary. They're making this up. Yeah. But they outgrew that space, and they um, uh, built a new factory. So let's see. Fred Wilfer built up one of the most modern factories of his time. In the summer of 1954, Framus moved into the new factory, and about 170 employees started to work. Whoa. Yeah. That's a lot of people. Uh, Yeah. So they made all kinds of instruments, uh, not just guitars. Uh, through the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, they made violins, violas, cellos, double basses, dulcimers, zithers, lutes. Oh, yeah, you got to have those. All manner of guitars and ukuleles and banjos, mandolins, and it says amplifiers. Have you seen mm. a Framus amplifier? I have not. I don't think I have either. Trying to think. Pretty neat. I, I don't think I could name a German brand of amplifier. Yeah. So in in the mid sixties they had a further expansion and built a second facility in Pretzfeld, Germany. Wow. Mm-hmm. Sky's the limit for these guys. Yeah. You see their guitars a lot. And I the reason I'm I wanted to get into their history was I just bought one here locally. Somebody had mm. a sixties, a beautiful little uh Folks, you know, size, yeah, uh, ladder braced little, cute little acoustic guitar, and I picked it up for cheap. But it's just beautiful. 
Like huh. it sounds, I mean, it's in beautiful condition and it's kind of cool. That's pretty rare for here and rare in good condition, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's, that's pretty fun. Yeah. So 1975, the rapidly changing market forced the company into bankruptcy. Yeah, man. OPEC. Yeah. So there it went. And then it was, um, it was reborn in the mid nineties. Uh, they went into production under the Warwick name. Hmm. And I think, I, I think it's still going to this day. I think they make like, uh, you know, overseas special bases. Yeah. Frame mm-hmm. us today. It says, oh. along with a range of electric guitars, the company produces replacement parts such as knobs and tuners and hardware for their vintage models. Oh. And a small range of high-end tube amplifiers. Really? They do. I did not know that. I like high-end tube amplifiers. I don't think that they do. Well, let me read this again. I'll give it a shot. In 1995, Hans-Peter Wilfer... The guy who started Warwick. Yeah, he's doing, still doing well. Oh, it's the son, yeah. Yeah. Revived the Framus name to produce musical instruments as part of Warwick in Germany. So maybe oh. so maybe they still are German-made. How about that? Or headquartered. Yeah. Along with yeah. a range of electric guitars, they also... Oh, yeah, I just read that. Okay, very cool, man. Well, that's fun. I know a lot of notable users have, have played... Framus guitars, uh, including... Uh, Any of them Beatles? Yeah, some early Beatles. Oh, I might have known. Early Beatles guitars. And I had it here uh, pulled up on the old computer, but now I don't see it. Yeah, John Lennon had yeah. a Framus Hootenanny. Yeah, when the world was black and white, and in, they had leather jackets and stuff. The, yeah, in 1965. Well, 65, he had um, a Framus Hootenanny. That's cool. Paul McCartney's first guitar, way back, way back in probably 19, you know, the late 50s. Yeah. Uh, his first guitar was a Zenith, Zenith, built by Framus on yeah. commission from some department store. Oh, like a Montgomery Ward deal. Yeah, kind of thing. and according to this website, he still owns it. Is that right? How about that? That's fun. It's I like know. His first little guitar. I know. a boy. That's pretty neat, man. That is cool. Yeah, I see a couple... There's a couple pictures of Framus amps here. Yeah, look at that. 2011 Framus amp, 30 watt, 212. Looks a lot like a Marshall or a Vox. Hmm. Well, yeah, nothing, that's how you'd have to do it. Yeah, nothing new under the sun. Well, yeah, but, that's true. Yeah, very neat. Anyhow, that's Framus. Uh, they've, I've always thought that they, they were interesting guitars and the label you see on the inside of acoustic guitars where it it shows, it shows a Uh picture of the Bavarian factory and it says something like, you know, made in Bavaria. Western Germany. It's got like cuckoo clocks. Yeah. It's cool, man. Wow. It's very neat. That is cool. Well, we've sufficiently used up some time here. I think so. I don't have any calls for us. So... I'm okay uh, with that, I guess. Yeah, so let's get right into the letters. Okay. Letters. We get letters. We get stacks and stacks of letters. Hi, Eric. Hi. Saw your post on Instagram about the Tweed Gibson amp handles. Mm-hmm. Is that something that took off and you're still doing? 
I have a 65 Epiphone Pathfinder that still has the metal handle, but the plastic part is long gone. You know all about that, huh? Mm-hmm. It is about the same as the Gibson you pictured, but the insert has a different pattern. Curious if you still make these handles. And is the insert tweed only, or do you do the later Tolex version? Does the Tolex just get dropped into a slot on the insert before screwing to the handle? Cheers, David. Thanks, David. I'm I'm not currently making those. I made, you know, a dozen or so of them, and then I've sold out. But I will make another batch at some point this year uh, because yeah. they're there's been there've been a few people reach out to me that they still want them. So what I'll have to do is just uh well I, I ran out of a out of uh the the goop epoxy resin yeah. is the deal. So I just need to go buy I need to go buy some more epoxy resin and uh I also need to get caught up on some other things before I start messing around with little projects like this where I barely break even. This is really making these amp handles is not making me rich. Trust me, hmm. it's fulfilling though, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, otherwise I wouldn't do it. But yeah, I will make some more. I don't have any right now. I don't do the later Tolex version. I only do the tweed insert. And yes, the insert just gets dropped into the inside the handle before it gets screwed onto the metal frame. See how we cleverly figured that out? But what I've found out is most amps, if you need to replace the handle, most amps will have a back panel you can take off, and there is usually just enough extra Tolex there that's been folded over and glued down that you could take uh, an X-Acto knife and cut some of that extra Tolex and make your own handle insert from the excess from the actual stuff. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, it's a, it's a little bit sacrilegious to be cutting Tolex off an amp. But if it comes from the inside of a back panel yeah. and it's not hurting anything. Yeah, it's staying in the family. I think it's, it's good. I think it's worth it to have a matching handle again. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like oh, that, yeah. that sacrifice is... is is something that well off of you're not taking it off the bottom or something like that it's no. just the interior where you can get to it yeah yeah um and i have a, a little insert that goes in to the handles that i make what you can do is you can take that insert that i use put it on the extra tolex that you've got and maybe trace around it so that that'll give you a template to see what you know the, the size you need because hey. it's a little bit it's a little bit there's a little bit of a shape to it like it has to be yeah. notched in a certain spot it's not a pure what, rectangle what not yep. yeah no not at all it's like an oval with some notches out of it yeah so well, yeah well that's, that's a f- fun little thing okay mm-hmm. we'll move on Thanks. hey big fan of the podcast that's just all it says always amazing tips I have a client that wants to accomplish a Stingray feeling bass with a P-bass tone. When he first reached out to me, he wanted to route a 70s Fender P and install his O3, OT3 as I like to call it, Stingray neck. Run. Heavens to Betsy. I tried to steer him away from this idea. 
I'd lean towards installing a P-Base pickup in the Stingray, or adding a new circuit that allows him to split the Stingray bucker to get a single coilish tone, right? It's got that big old hairy mm. thing on there. I'm much more keen on modding slash routing the newer guitar. Yes. If I route and install a P-Base pickup, what do you think a good straightforward circuit would be to have the passive P pickup and active Stingray humbucker and perhaps be able to blend the two? I've never mixed passive and active electronics in a case of them being engaged simultaneously. Or if we create a coil tap in the existing active system, is there a circuit you'd recommend? Hmm. That's Braden in Toronto, Canada. Braden... Let me tell you, so there, it, this would be a slightly different answer if you were telling me, hey, I want to do this to my own personal base. Yeah. Or it's a fun project, huh? And I kind of know what I'm doing. But when a customer comes up with an idea like this, I would, honestly, I would tell this guy, look, I'm going to pass on this project. This is not really... This is not. This is not really going to work very well. Yeah, the outcome you, is very uncertain here. You bud. can't mix um, passive and elect, active, passive and active bass electronics, and have it work well. The active part is just going to be way louder, yeah. way louder than the passive pickup. You're not going to be able to blend it well. It's not going to be pretty. You're going to have to route out. Uh, a P-Base slot for it? Look, I'm telling you. Yeah. Run away from this project. Be polite. This, mm -hmm. this is my, this is, honestly, this is my recommendation to you. Tell this fella, thanks but no thanks. And one of the reasons why I would tell you this is, over the years, I've realized that, because um, this happens to me all the time, guys yeah. want some crazy thing, and they get a, be in their bonnet that they this do. is what they want. They're like, okay, I want... What are all these extra noises? What was that? I don't know. Something fall off the wall? I have no clue. Heavens. Between your phone and... Well, I apologize. I found a button to make it not do that. Where was I? You're telling this these guy... These guys get these crazy ideas and they beg you. They're like, please, this is going to solve all of my problems and I can die happy... If you will do this crazy thing to my guitar, like yeah. put frets in between the frets, or put put a <laughs> yeah. put a put a P bass pickup in my Warwick, or yeah, whatever. and I'll never ask for anything um, else, and please, I'll totally be done. I'll do seven Hail Marys. Yeah. yeah, it's wild. The problem with doing a project like that is this instrument is going to show up on the used market sooner rather than later because. It's going to turn out that it wasn't what they wanted, and it didn't actually work like they thought it was going to, and then they're just going to try to wash their hands of it. But what they're going to do is they're going to put it on, you know, Reverb or Craigslist or eBay or something, and they're going to talk all about you and about how you modified this <laughs> instrument, and you oh. cut this big hole in it, oh. and you this you don't want this. No, shudder. And I realized early on, if it's not something that you would want your name attached to, don't do it. Because hmm. people ask me to do crazy things, and then you think about it. Okay, 
if this guitar shows up on reverb and says, Eric Daw <laughs> did the modifications, are you going to be happy or sad about that? And that's, that's a great you, standard. That's how right you there. have to think yeah. about it. That's how you have to think about it. So, as a luthier, when people start getting out into left field and want you to do nutty things, ask yourself if you want your name attached to that project because it will be forever. What an important principle we yeah. just learned on that. Yeah. So, coil tap. There you go. At all? Is there any chance of that work? Coil tap. With the big old. Coil tap in the existing. Base. We create a coil tap in the existing active system. Oh, it's active. You'd recommend. I'm telling you. Yeah, we can't do this. Run away from this project. We're out. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. We've talked a lot about neck straightening irons on the show, and people write to me and they say, Eric, where can I get one? Well, until now, I didn't have anywhere to send people because nobody makes them anymore, except for my buddy Rick at playersgearmusic.com. You can go to Players Gear Music. You can order a neck straightening iron. Some people call it a neck press or a neck heater. It is an invaluable tool in my shop. I use it all the time. I'd be lost without one of these. I I love having a neck straightening iron, and Rick is making a really, really stout industrial. It, I I think it I think it's the best one that I've used, and I've I've used a lot. I've used uh, the commercially available ones that they used to sell in the 70s and 80s, but they don't sell them anymore. Well, now you can get one. From playersgearmusic.com. They're $749. I know that seems like a lot. It's it's a tool, I tell you what, it's gonna pay for itself a hundred times over. If you go to playersgearmusic.com, scroll down on the main page, scroll, scroll, scroll down to where it says fan of the Fret Files podcast. You click that, that adds one to your cart. And it's fifty bucks off. So instead of seven forty nine, it's six ninety nine. Six ninety nine, free shipping, and it's yours. A neck straightening iron. Playersgearmusic.com has them, and you need one. I'm telling you. So go to playersgearmusic.com and check it out. And don't forget to tell Rick that the Fret Files podcast sent you. Hey guys, I'm Cody with Apex Coffee Roasters. I wanted to give a few pointers on how to brew the best possible coffee at home. First thing you're gonna need to make great coffee at home is great coffee. So whether you have Apex or one of the other many delicious roasters out there, having great coffee is definitely step number one. Step two is having a a good consistent grind um, through that coffee where each particle is relatively the same size is gonna be really important to your overall extraction. Once the coffee is ground, uh, it starts to lose its aromatics and its quality fairly quickly. So grinding immediately before brewing is the most ideal situation. Tip number three is 99-ish percent of your coffee, what you're going to be consuming is made up of the water that you brewed with. So having high quality brew water is definitely essential to the overall taste of that coffee. If you have water filtration, that is gonna be significantly better than just using straight tap water. If you follow the first few guidelines of using high quality coffee, making sure your grind is correct, using good brewing water, those are all going to ensure that just a 
basic coffee maker um, is actually going to give you a really good tasting cup. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, order coffee from apexcoffeeroasters.com, and we'll see you soon. Thanks. That's good coffee. If you order Apex Coffee online, make sure to use our promo code PINUP. That's P-I-N-U-P. That way they know that the Fret Files podcast sent you and you get 10% off. Oh, yeah. How about the Apex Coffee? It's awful good. I know, man. I'm telling you that the, it's so worth it. Order Can't some, be beat. Order some Apex Coffee. If you're a coffee drinker, order up a bag of Apex Coffee and then write to me and tell me what you thought. I want to hear about it. I love this coffee. I'm serious. Not got a just, coupon deal Not just or because they, yes. Oh. Well, then we just, they heard the commercial. Oh. You use my promo code, PINAP. Oh, yeah. I've done it. There you go. It saves you a little money. It's back, pretty good. Back to the questions. Let's do, okay, let's try this one. Hi, Eric. My question is not regarding guitars. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah, that would really be annoying. But regarding Guitar cases. Oh crap! That's worse. Yeah, it's going right. to be good though. I'm, I'm, I'm bracing myself yeah. for well, the worst. Let's rededicate ourselves to this effort here. I recently bought a near mint Fender Strat AVRI. Help me with that. Something reissue American vintage, really issue fifty seven from the early nineties. It was the first Fender model I owned, and I keep coming back to it. That's cool. Hmm. The guitar is in great shape, but the original G&G cases that came with it smell, the original case, I said, that came with it smells of cigarette smoke. Mm. Oh, it's legit vintage. Is there any sure-to-work method for getting the smell out of the case? Love the show. Please keep up the great work. Kind regards. That's Jan or Jan in Bangkok, Thailand. That's exotic. Cool, man. Uh, this is a question I get a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. Not a lot, but I get it from time to time. Um, how do I get the cigarette smoke out of the case? And my recommendation is that you take up smoking. <laughs> <laughs> it's the simplest route. This is yeah. the simplest solution to your well, problem. I fight it, bud. Just go with it. You'll, uh, you'll never notice that case again, huh? That smell. No, I, it's a question I get a lot, and I'm not a fumigator, so I don't really have, you know, a great answer. It's like, how do I get the smell out of my car or out of my out of my pants? I don't know. Uh, we, but we've had this question before on the podcast, and Nat... I, well, I kicked a few rocks down this road. Remember that? Fender whatever 90s uh, cabinet that I put my yeah kind of a Tweed Pro in there. Yeah. Here's what I did. This is a, a question for that other podcast where they do an excellent job, but we'll give it a shot. I put it outside in the sun. Mm-hmm. I think that contributed. I think that helped. Um, I used some of that ozone cleaner stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh it must oxygenate it, um, oxidize the stuff, and I used regular cleaner, mm-hmm. and I did multiple applications, and I think it helped a ton. Hmm. So that special cleaner stuff that you can, if you go looking for it, you'll find it, hmm. that I believe uses the it's some kind of oxidizer. Yeah. 
Um, we've yeah, we, we've had this question on the podcast before, and people wrote in something about an ozone machine or like an ozone. Who has ozone I machines? Don't know. This is madness. Yeah, it is. You don't have a grocery but store. They, they have like an ozone spray. Is that what you're, tell- yeah. what you're telling me? Yeah. Um, I think you could get it if in a pinch. If you can't find it anywhere, you could get it at one of these um, outfits that rents fans when you... In Thailand, even? Well, yeah. Uh, you're in big trouble. Um, another idea, and this is something I've always told people when they ask me this. This is my go-to answer. Take baking soda. Yep. Spring. Because with a guitar case, it's like... Uh, plush. Yeah, it's 3D, man. It's plush. It's not a hard interior. Surface. It's not. Yeah, that's so, why it holds those smells. So you um, douse it with baking soda. Mm-hmm. Close the case and just shake it all around, and maybe just even let it sit for a while. Yep. With the baking soda in it, and then you can vacuum up the baking soda. Yep. It should help quite a bit. Or cornstarch is a product that people can use because I think it's just sheer surface area. Yeah, absorbing that kind of stuff. I wonder if diatomaceous earth it sure would would help. I got some for the chickens. Yeah, you feed your chickens diatomaceous earth? No, they take little dust baths in it. Really? Yeah, it breaks up all the little mites or lice or whatever. Yeah, it, little chicken mites. Yeah, little bugs can't hang with diatomaceous earth. That's what a dust earth. bath is for. Isn't that neat? It microscopically, I guess it's like little little shards little, of glass. Yeah, little limestone fossil deals. Weird. It just cuts right through a bug. Well, that was a tangent. Well, that's a good one. All right. Thanks, uh, Jan from Bangkok. Exotic. Mm-hmm. Thanks for calling in from so far or writing. Well, let me try this one. Greetings, Eric and Nat. Hey. Hello. Hey. I have a Gibson made P13 pickup. Cool. In a 1952 Silvertone 1315 lap steel. Wow. I've read that the P13 is an intermediate between the earlier Charlie Christian pickups and the P90. I'm curious what the differences are between the P13 and the P90, and if you've ever had had a chance to take a P13 apart and see how they're made. I have no intention of taking mine apart. Attaboy. I hope that you're both doing well. Take care out there. That's from Mike in Cincinnati, Ohio. Thanks, Mike. Well, that's a good one. We're doing well. Are you doing well? He's probably doing all right. No, you, Nat. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was just standing in for old Mike. I'm thinking, well, hey, he's right across from Kentucky over there having a good time. They got football team. and uh, Yeah, doing great. Uh, we're Thanks. doing we're I, doing well. Hey, I got a furnace. What yeah. a miracle. Nat got his furnace fixed. So I tried nice. to hold out on him for several weeks, and all I got was cold feet. He doesn't have to put uh, uh, hand warmers in his under his mattress anymore. Yeah, it was cold. Mike, the P13 is a cool pickup. I've had a few harmonies with that uh, with that pickup in there. Oh, now I know. Yes, yeah, it's a Gibson made early version of a P90. Yeah, with the, usually has a metal square cover. Is that mm-hmm. right? No dog ear. Yeah, yeah, but it's very like internally, it's very similar to a P ninety. The big difference is, and I know this because I've had to rewind a few. The bobbin is basically like wax paper. Hmm. Very, very fragile. Not terribly sturdy. Little wax paper deal that's just barely held together with some, maybe you know, like tape. 
it's not <laughs> it's not a very stout way to make a pickup which is probably why they almost immediately improved it mm-hmm. into the yeah. P90 version which actually has a uh, you know a plastic bobbin that you huh. can that you can wind and rewind and it won't get warped when you like uh, yeah try to try to dip a wax paper bobbin pickup into a hot pot of wax they just yeah it's not an option and ask it to be flat yeah it's not an option it's just gonna completely disintegrate yeah. so yeah that's the main difference i'm trying to think if there are any other anatomical differences so does it have a flat bar magnet in the bottom i think what it has is just like a p90 it has the um screw the steel uh-huh. flathead screws as pole pieces that go for the magnet. through the bobbin and they come down and then there's a magnet, one on each side of the s- bottoms of the screws. Oh, and, oh, okay. They're a long side. Yeah, and the polarities like of the magnets, um, like you'll have the south poles facing each other. Yeah, they're head to toe. Yeah, so they, they're both oh, no. Face- facing each other. So oh. The, so the same polarity faces in yeah. uh, and surrounds the magnet, and that makes the top of the screw whatever polarity the magnets are that are facing the screw. Does oh. that make sense? So if both if both south poles are facing the screws, then mm-hmm. the screws are going to be south-facing, south-magnetic polarity. Yeah. Uh-huh. And the opposite, of course, is also true. If, they're, if, huh. the north, if the north poles are facing the screws, then it's going to be a north-facing magnetic polarity. But I think that's the main difference is that it has a flimsy paper bobbin other than that i i'm pretty sure it's just about identical to a p90 yeah well that's a fun little question yeah. i like those kind of absolutely transitional history early guitar stuff well mm-hmm. good thanks mike thank you mike hello fret files podcast hello there i have seen two different methods for reinforcing reinforcing broken headstocks how many have you seen four billion <laughs> <laughs> I bet. One method is where they route two channels running oh, parallel to the truss rod a few inches long across the broken section, and then hardwood splines are inlaid across the break. Okay. Yep. Sure. Yeah. That's called splining, you know, yeah. Spl- yeah. splines. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you gotta, because you just have a mangled mess. The other method I've seen is the back strap method where a section of the back of the neck and headstock where the break occurred is routed away and a new section of wood is overlaid on top of that break and then in each case the extra wood is shaped and sanded and finished and made to look as nice as possible. Which method do you prefer and why? Or is there a third method that I'm not aware of? Thanks. Lynn in Tumwater, Washington. Mm. Out there suburb of Lacey. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Beautiful Thanks. this time of year. Thanks, Lynn. Uh, yeah, those are two pretty popular methods of reinforcing broken headstocks. Um, I guess the, 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 uh, the first approach that I try, if it's, a, if it's a headstock that's never been broken before, and there's plenty of gluing surface on the headstock... I won't use any reinforcing method. I'll just glue up the headstock and touch it up if needs be. 
Oh. And um, hope for the best, right? Because if you've got fresh wood and it's a fresh break and it's not... Um, not too splintery or yeah, jagged. And it, and it hasn't been smeared with a bunch of tight bond glue or something. Um, then oftentimes if there's plenty of gluing surface, like, because you'll have... You'll have a break that's very angular, right? Mm-hmm. And so you end up with actually quite a good sized area yeah. of gluing surface. And if it fits together well and it's not too splintered or shattered, I like to glue them up without any reinforcement method. And um, I typically use hot hide glue. Uh, because hmm. if you have glue failure or if it re-breaks, uh, you can glue it again with hot hide glue and get good results. The problem with using tight bond is that uh, new tight bond and old tight bond don't work together well. Oh. You can't re-glue it once it's been tight bonded okay. very well. You'd have to remove all the old glue. Anyhow, to your question, reinforcement methods come in in my world, once they've already been glued up and that and that repair is failing. So it's been broken twice, maybe three times. It looks like there's been tight bond used, and so there, you're not going to get a good bonding with any glue unless you clean up all that old glue. So at that point, th- then we're looking at a reinforcement method in, in my book, and different repairmen will take a different stance on this some of them go right to splines and or every time or or a backstrap yeah but uh if it's but if it's a if it's a good break that looks like it's gonna hold glue i don't do any reinforcing if i have to do reinforcing uh i prefer the backstrap method to splines Hmm. yeah splines it just seems to me like you're removing too much wood and it's adjacent to the truss rod and I've seen too many spline jobs that have failed and I've also seen um, well, how can I put this? It's, It's harder to make spline jobs look nice. It's easier to make a backstrap job look better. Yeah, I bet. So, um, if I have to choose one over the other, I would choose the backstrap method, but, yeah. That's good. How's that for an answer? That's pretty good. I think about some of those guitars I've owned and think about the Bondo that must have been used on those things. And I know. You didn't say anything about that. Well, people talk, you know, people talk about how much a broken headstock devalues a guitar. And... Um, part of the reason for that is because they're, they've, historically, they've been so poorly repaired. Yeah, it's probably the the visual horror that you experience when you see something like that. So, the better it's repaired, the less it affects the value in my mind. Yeah. Yeah, imagine the point where you didn't know, it was indiscernible. You pick this guitar up off the rack at Emerald City and you say, this guitar is rad. Yeah. And not to say that, you know, people should be fooled at all, but... Yeah, it should always be disclosed. But if you yeah. couldn't tell, obviously, it, I mean, it's, you know, think of that compared to an obvious break. Like, I had this thing that had 
two nuts and bolts in it and a, oh, yeah. and a strap mm-hmm. and yeah. it was a complete lumpy mess. Yeah. And it's now a minor lumpy mess, but it's <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty good. That was a tough repair. You didn't do that. Yeah, I've seen a lot of those though where people have you know, put a screw through the headstock yeah. or a nut and a bolt or something. Yeah. yeah, it's it's bad news. A lot of bad headstock repairs. There've there's been more of a uh it's 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 a newer approach, this kind of more like uh conservationist oh. you know approach toward repair where I don't know how to how to say it, but just repair methods have have improved greatly, I think. And they're probably skewing like yours towards less invasive, yeah, less totally yeah. gnarly skilled of dependent like the splines where it's unnecessary. Yeah, yeah. Well, I like that that you um, kind of illuminated that fact that you probably have two great big gluing surfaces if the neck is still or the headstock is still on there mm-hmm. it's just kind of a split it's not a completely broken off yeah, and it so can, it can be done so use that to your advantage and then focus on cleaning up mm-hmm. i like it that does it for the show thank you so much for participating if you did and if you didn't well why don't you send in a question for next episode go over to ericdaw.com that's E-R-I-C-D-A-W dot com. Click the contact link and send in your question or comment there. We'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call or text 757-774-8482 and uh, we'll use your voicemail as part of the show. Thanks so much and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Nat. Thank you. Bye-bye.